And the rest of us, please turn to the gospel according to Luke. We are in chapter 7. <clears throat> Got a scratchy voice this morning. Uh, turn with me to our scripture lesson. Again, Luke chapter 7. We will be wrapping up this great chapter, uh, chapter 7, uh, this morning. Uh, what really is a great chapter really highlights for us the truth of what God, through Dr. Luke, wants us to see in this gospel account, in the gospel account according to Luke, the, the compassion, the love, the mercy of Jesus upon the, the hurting and the marginalized. Again, um, we'll, you know, the reason why we're calling this series Mission to the World uh, is the love of Jesus going out to those who are hurting and, and just desperately need to hear and to see the beauty of the gospel Jesus, we know, is still in Galilee ministering in uh, that region, uh, healing many people, <coughs> excuse me, of all kinds of illnesses, all kinds of sicknesses. He's delivering people from demonic oppression. He is cleansing the unclean from religious defilement. Excuse me one second. <coughs> if you remember from the beginning of this chapter, he heals a Roman a centurion's uh, sick servant who was dying. Um, uh, Romans weren't really particularly loved in that day. Uh, if you remember also uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Jesus rose up on this funeral and he heals a widow's son uh, from the dead, actually delivers the child from the dead. And he's, as, as we like to say, not mostly dead, but all the way dead, right? Mostly dead is slightly alive, right? The man is dead. Jesus heals him, raises him from the grave and gives back this, this child, this probably a young man, to his mother, who was a widow. She's been down this road before. And he gives her his son back, her son back. The only means of protection and provision uh, and his, and his love and his compassion goes out to this destitute widow. Then as King Jesus is exercising his authority, his power, a word gets back to John the Baptist. We saw this last week. And John the Baptist, as we know, is in, in, in the dungeon, in prison, waiting for his execution. Um, Jesus, uh, excuse me, John sends two disciples and says, look, go talk to Jesus, go ask Jesus a question. Verses 19 and 20 of chapter 7, uh, we see the question asked twice for emphasis. John says, go ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? What we saw last week is that Jesus responds to this question with, with overwhelming empirical and scriptural evidence of this divine authority, this kingly authority, this great messianic power that rests in Jesus. John tells, uh, Jesus tells John, tell a man there's no one else to come. That's really what he says. There's no one else to come. I'm the Messiah. I'm the king. I'm the redeemer. I'm the one promised from the Old Testament. Look at chapter 7, verse 22. Jesus says, go and tell John which you have seen, Jesus' healing, power, authority, and heard the rising of the sun in Cain. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. We said last week that last verse, that last part of that verse, that the, the, the good news is being preached to the poor comes from Isaiah 61. When Jesus was in Nazareth, he opened up to Isaiah 61 and says, this has been fulfilled in your midst. This is what the Messiah is going to do. He's going to raise the dead. He's going to heal the brokenhearted. And he's going to preach the good news, the gospel, to the poor. And 
we saw last week that that was an encouragement to many people. We saw in verse 29 that there was people encouraged. They, they had been baptized with John. They understood that John's baptism was a baptism of preparation for the coming of the Messiah. They've been baptized by John. And now they see and hear Jesus preaching and teaching. But look at verse 30. It says the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purposes of God for themselves. Why? Having nothing not having been baptized by John. In other words, the, these religious leaders, these self-righteous kind of, uh, I would say bigot, but these, these self-righteous religious people, Jesus compares them to playing, if you remember, playing this wedding and this funeral, and that they don't want to participate. And what Jesus is saying is, the, the, the people who are baptized with John are ready, and they're waiting for the Messiah. The religious people don't want nothing to do with it. They want to play by their own rules. They don't, they don't want to submit to, the, to, to Christ. They don't want to submit to God. And all that God has provided for them in their salvation and their redemption. And as we get to the text this morning, it's important that we look at verse 33, just for a moment. Jesus says, I compare this generation to kids playing. And then in verse 33, he says, John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. You say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors, excuse me, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So John comes with this ascetic life, not eating bread. We know he eats bugs and drinks honey. He doesn't drink any wine. You know what? He's a demon, because only demons would do that. And then they look at Jesus and say, you know what? This guy comes, he's eating and drinking. He's a glutton, and he's a drunkard. Jesus comes with the joy of the kingdom, eating and drinking. They say, no, he's a drunk. He's a glutton. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And what we'll see in this text this morning as we look in uh, the, our, our scripture lesson, chapter 7, verse 36 through 50, is that they, most, they got it mostly right, right? He came eating and drinking and going to parties. He's not a drunk. He's not a, 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 a glutton, but he is a friend. Listen. He's a friend to sinners. That's the point. And, and I'm glad, and I hope you're glad, that he is this morning. So as we see this narrative, we'll see it under three clear headings. First, the infiltration of a party. This, this woman comes walking into the Pharisee's home. Secondly, the illustration from a parable. Jesus is going to teach to illustrate his point through a parable, which he does many times. And third, we'll see the implication of her pardon. This woman is forgiven of her sins. And what does that say to us? And that'll lead us into our communion together. So hopefully we'll get through this. Let me use a uh, mint here, a uh, throat lozenger. Okay, so number one, the infiltration of a party. Now, in verse 36 and following, it's very easy to read this narrative and really miss the weight of the scene, of, of what's really going on, right? We're not really sure exactly where Jesus is. He was in, Cain, he was in Nain, a little city outside of Capernaum. Um, but many theologians think, you know, he could be back in Capernaum. We're not really sure exactly where he is. But a Pharisee has invited Jesus to come to his house for a party, it's somewhat common in that day for a Pharisee, religious leaders of that day, to invite an entire, a preacher, a teacher, someone that's come into the village, into the city, to invite them to their house for a meal. 
Now, you know, in that day, as sometimes in our day as well, a meal is something that they would share together. Usually it would be a time of fellowship, a time of communion, a time of companionship. You don't invite just anyone into your home. This Pharisee invites them into the home. And I don't think the reason is for um, communion or companionship. I think what's happening here is Jesus' hostility is growing, which we saw. His popularity is growing, but his hostility is also growing. And this Pharisee invites him into the house, I think, to catch him, to, 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 to try and to uh, use this opportunity to show that Jesus isn't who he says he is. If you remember back in chapter 5, we read that the Pharisees had come from Judea and even from Jerusalem up to Galilee to try to catch Jesus to try to maliciously point out something wrong in his ministry. Um, they were looking to trap him. And, and, and we'll see as we walk through this gospel account together that the hostility in the Pharisees, you know, in, in their lives and the way they treat Jesus will continue to grow and grow and grow. Now, I've mentioned this before, but the Pharisees uh, come from a group known as the Separatists. That's where they get their name. So their whole life goal was to keep the nation of Israel faithful to God. They spent all their time writing these laws and these elaborate systems of tradition to keep people from violating the Mosaic law, the, the, the five books of Moses. But what happened is they strangled their people with all these different silly laws that they would place on top of the scriptures themselves. It got to the point where the Pharisees equated salvation, now listen, equated salvation by separation, by keeping themselves pure and safe and distant from those sinners. Overly zealous, overly religious, according to their own traditions, very moral. So for them to come into contact with those sinners would violate, would actually not only violate, but would pollute themselves of their own holiness. Now, there's speculation. Why would, why would this Pharisee actually invite Jesus? Again, I think it's to trap him. What you'll find in this text is that throughout this meeting, this party with Jesus, there's all kinds of, of proper um, courtesies that they just completely dismiss. Jesus later in the passage will say that he was not greeted with a customary kiss. They would kiss on the cheek in that day. It's like a big handshake or a bear hug in our day. The host didn't provide water for his feet, didn't anoint him with oil. They're looking to trap him. Now, I want you, if you can, I want us, if we can, to imagine for a moment this, this gathering, this gathering of highly moral, religious, Bible-thumping Pharisees. Only men are at this meal. They are, in those days, leaning on the floor on, on a small couch on their side, feet facing out from the table where the food was. One hand, they would feed themselves, feet away from the food. And all of a sudden, in the middle of this highly religious meeting, there's a woman standing there, a woman of the night, a sinner. Some commentators 
think that this party might have moved out into the courtyard where they would gather together in, with larger crowds. Because in those days, if you have an itinerant preacher or, or a rabbi visiting, you'd move it outside so people in the neighborhood could come and listen to these devout men of God, religious people, speak and discuss the law and things of like that nature. We're not really sure. Maybe she just walked in, and as she's walking in, nobody wanted to say a word. Like, is this really happening? But either way, everyone in that room, and I want you to feel this, everyone in that room when that woman came walking in knew her. They know her sin. Can you imagine if everyone in this room this morning knows the sin that you've kept to yourself? That you didn't tell anyone. But now everyone knows, and it's on display. That thing, that moment, that day, and now everyone knows. Would you walk in this room? The description of this woman is quite telling. She's a woman of the city. History and tradition declares her to be just that, a woman of the city, by that name, a prostitute, a whore. Her sin, her lifestyle, her notorious lifestyle is, is, is present. Everyone knows it. And she's not invited. They would never invite her to this meal. She hears that Jesus has gone to this Pharisee's house. And she's going to do what is unthinkable in that day and barge in. Break in. Infiltrate the party. Sorry about that. And she's there, listen, she's there because she, at one time, heard something of the ministry of Jesus, most likely saw him teach. She knew something of the hope of forgiveness that Jesus offered her. And she's there with overwhelming gratitude to see Jesus. She could not have come into this room with the intent to see and worship Jesus if she had not already had some kind of interaction, some kind of contact with him and the message of the gospel. At some point, the, the ministry of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the preaching of Jesus touched her heart, touched her heart and, and grabbed her heart, and she turned to him to find forgiveness. Something transformative is going on in this woman's heart. Something about the ministry and the teaching of Jesus, given her the strength, has given her the courage with tearful faith to walk into this room. Even though her sins were many, she comes barging into this meeting. See her take her alabaster of perfume, flack of perfume, it's actually, it says ointment, but it's a perfume. And walk right into this religious gathering. If you're not sure what an alabaster flask is, it's, it's this little gobular, long, skinny neck tube that they would keep perfume in. And inside this, this, this globular, there would, there would be a hole on the top. You couldn't pour anything out, but it would be just enough for the scent to flow out of this flask that she wore around her neck. In fact, many women in the ancient world would wear this if they had money. They would, it would cost a lot of money. And they would wear this flask around their neck. 
It was considered an object of beauty and attractiveness to make you smell nice, ladies. Remember, this is before deodorant. <laughs> Lots of soap, I'm sure, as well. No air conditioning. It's hot and dry. And there'll be a cloud, a scent, a nice scent about her. But I'll tell you, a woman of the city wore it for a different reason. Her perfume she wore was to entice men and maybe to cover the stench after being with many of them. They see her coming. What could possibly be on her mind at that moment? Was she afraid? Was she nervous? Was she so full of shame that she kept her eyes on the floor and wouldn't look at anybody? These holy, religious, devout men and walk straight to Jesus? They all know her reputation. She's probably at this point the only woman in the room. And there she comes walking in. Now by that time... The men have gathered, their, their feet are set away from the table, their, their, their sandals were removed from their dusty and dirty feet, and this woman approaches Jesus right behind him where his feet are, verse 38, and she begins to just weep. There's so much water flowing from her eyes that it, it wets Jesus' feet sufficiently to cleanse them with her hair. She didn't come in and kiss him on the cheek. She came in, she humiliated herself and begins to kiss his feet. She must have broke the alabaster flask as she pours this over Jesus' feet and continues to wipe his feet with her, from her tears and now the ointment that's been poured out, the, the perfume. The only thing she had, the very leverage she would use to, to show her desirability, her attractiveness, that which she owned and that which she had was very expensive. She pours it out on Jesus' feet. Everything she has. The verb tense is she kept crying. She kept weeping. She kept kissing his feet. Everyone must have just stopped and freaked out. Right? I can't believe She's doing this. And she is just overwhelmed, I think, not only of gratitude, but overcome with the consciousness and the awareness of her own sin. And that's what happens when you come face to face with Jesus. Right? Doesn't it? She came, you know, we recognize that he is holy. I'm not holy. He is without sin. Yet, she says, I'm, I'm filled with sin. We're filled with sin. He's clean, spiritually speaking, Yet we are unclean in the sight of God. Martin Luther calls these tears heart water. I think that's right. As it flows out of her heart, cleansing her soul. Notice she didn't come with a towel. She, she, she wasn't expecting this to happen, I don't think. But overwhelmed by, by her own sinfulness and overwhelmed by the beauty of, and the holiness of God. Overwhelmed by the gratitude and grace. She just loosens her hair and begins to wipe his feet, the perfume and the water from her tears. And that too, the scripture tells us, excuse me, antiquity tells us, is socially unacceptable. Women don't let their hair down in public. In fact, the married woman, uh, the Talmud says, if she did that, it was grounds for a divorce. 
But biblically speaking, she did nothing wrong. She didn't break any commandments. Someone once said that her actions are passionate, not erotic. That's true. She's repentant. She's humble. She, she, her heart is broken. She's filled with gratitude. All I believe, this is all going on in her life. She's a grieved sinner. This is her way of just acknowledging, even publicly in front of this whole crowd of men, the, the most judgmental, shaming, condemning, self-righteous men, religious folks that, yes, I'm sinful. Yes, I regret my life. Yes, I've come to the feet of Jesus. Eyes filled with tears coming down her face. Wiping Jesus' feet. I want you to see that. Everyone's in shock. She's crying. And she falls at his feet. When she acknowledges her sin, when she's shedding her tears, cleaning his feet, anointing his feet, kissing his feet, family, she is worshiping the Lord. Both humility and devotion found in what she's doing. She's worshiping Jesus passionately. She's worshiping Jesus humbly, publicly, repentantly, generously. She's given all she has to worship her king, her Lord, her forgiver. That's the infiltration. And right on cue, <laughs> Simon the Pharisee, the self-righteous one. Look what it says. The one invited him to the party. It says, he said to himself, notice that. He said to himself, you know, unfortunately, self-condemning, um, self-righteous, morally arrogant people begin by speaking to themselves. When I wrote that in my notes, I'll be honest with you. I put a little side note here. All of us do that. Be careful. Don't we do that? You don't have to raise your hand. It's okay. We're quick to judge in our self-talk. I'm not alone. I know. We're quick to judge in our self-talk. We have to be careful. We think right away, judgmental, and we're, we're, we're quick to point out faults of others. This man's attitude, Simon's attitude, was judgmental, and he was quick to condemn her for her sins. And when self-righteous, arrogant, religious people judge others, what they're doing is they're putting their sins in a different category than someone else's sins. Right? That's what we do. Yours are over here. That's really bad. It's a whole different category. Like, I'm over here. It's really not that bad. I'm pretty good. I'm pretty obedient. But she, she's really bad. Typical of the Pharisees. And we'll see that throughout the gospel according to Luke. Well, verse 39, I think Simon was wondering whether he's a prophet or not. Verse 39, from his assessment, says that Jesus was, let me move that over. I didn't do that. I'm sorry. You guys, keep me on point back there, would you? Move it over to the next slide. <clears throat> from his assessment, this guy ain't no prophet. If he was a prophet, he would associate with her. He would allow her to touch him. Now, some of you may be new here. So when we talk about religious people, as we, we do in this context, 
We're not talking about religious in the sense where we believe in Jesus. We're a disciple of Jesus. We're a follower of Jesus. That's our religion. That's not what we mean. In the context of religious people, in this context with Pharisees and self-righteous people we see in the gospel, when we say religious people, we mean, and we're talking about those who think, listen, those who think they could earn their way into a right relationship with God, a right relationship with God through their moral behavior, through the things that they do, their moral goodness, their own virtue. The principal life somehow earns God, earns God's favor and actually puts God in their debt. I'm doing well. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. You, I, you're, I mean, God, you're in my debt to love me, to forgive me, to accept me based on my moral performance. That's what we mean. We say religious people. That's a Pharisee. That's a Pharisee. Then that's a Pharisee now. And I should know because I'm a recovering Pharisee. I was fortunate enough to play both the, the, the prodigal son eating from the pig pen, pig slop, and then turning around and patting myself on the back like the elder brother. Look how good I'm doing. I've done everything you've asked me, for, Father. Why are, you, why are you treating your other, my brother like this? I've done all you've asked me to do. Don't I deserve this? That was me. See, religion in that context is about just being good and being moral and being better. And like then and like now, these religious men would have no contact with sinners. So if Jesus was a real prophet, he was a real prophet, he would know better. He would know better. You know what, what kills me in this text too is that they're not even slightly moved at all by her brokenness. They're unmoved by the woman's tears. They think she's not a candidate for salvation, not a candidate for redemption or forgiveness. And, which self-righteous people do, they assume that God shares the same judgment as them. If Jesus had anything to do with God, if he really was a prophet of God, he would judge her like we are. That's what Simon is saying. In the scripture, look, I love the way it says that. Jesus, he, Simon didn't say anything out loud, and Jesus like, yeah, I know what you're thinking, Simon. Look at that, verse 40. Jesus answered to him, right? So if a man were a prophet, he says this to himself, he'd know. He would never allow this to happen. And then Jesus says to Simon, you read Simon's heart, read Simon's mind, and he says, Simon. Now, this is the part of Scripture that I wish we had, um, we knew the kind of, um, what voice he used. We don't have a description of what Jesus said. Did he say, Simon, I have something I want to tell you. Or did he read the room, looked at Simon, heard what was going on in Simon's heart, and he said, hey, Simon, something I want to tell you. What is it, teacher? I like that one better. I don't know because we don't know, but that one. And, and, and Jesus wants to show Simon. I, I, I think it's a kind rebuke. Jesus wants to show Simon, and he wants to illustrate to get Simon out of this, this, this self-righteous and prejudiced thoughts, and he draws him into this parable. I, I think it's kindness. I think it's, it's patience of Jesus. He doesn't immediately condemn Simon for being a self-righteous bigot, but he wants to lead him through this parable to the self-awareness, like, Simon, do you, do you hear yourself? It's not a very complicated I mean, if you look at the parable, it's not that complicated. 
I don't think he caught it, but it's not that complicated. Jesus said, listen, there are two people who owe money. They have a debt. And these two people were forgiven by a certain money lender. One owed 500 denarii, which, by the way, is about two years' worth of wages. One owed 50 denarii. That's uh, two months' wages. A denarii is a day wage minus the Sabbath. Two months, two years. Think about your salary. It's a big difference. And he asked him the question, very simple. When they couldn't pay, verse 42, he canceled the debt. Which one of them would love him more? Two months, two years. Simon answered, I love this. The one I suppose. Just in case I'm wrong in front of all my friends, I'm supposing. I don't want to say too much. It seems like a silly two-year-old parable, but I suppose. I suppose. From whom he canceled the larger debt, and he said to him, you have judged rightly. Good job. Way to go, Simon. Hold on to your hat. The text is clear, right? The debts that were owed were forgiven. Very simple. There was no bargaining. There was no reciprocal giving on the part of the one who was forgiven. The debt was absorbed by the money lender. Both men received what? Grace. In fact, the verb uh, canceled, charizomai, comes from karas, which means grace. It literally means he graced them. He, he graciously canceled the debt. And through this parable, Jesus is illustrating the contrast between this humble, forgiven, broken, repented woman and Simon and his arrogance and self-control, self-righteous attitude. The Pharisees had two ideas or, or, or two categories. You had the holy and the unholy. And according to them in that day, they are of the category of holy. The prostitute and Jesus, well, unholy. We're holy, you're unholy. We got it right, you got it wrong. And he, in some degree, they're right. There is holy and unholy. Unfortunately, Jesus is holy and he's the only one. And everybody else is in the category of the unholy. They didn't see it that way. The Pharisees didn't see it that way. And what happens is there's a tendency to live that stuff in your head. And to perpetuate the lie, and they tend to think quietly, speaks to himself, criticizing people who are loving Jesus, serving Jesus, worshiping Jesus. That's what this woman's doing. This woman is worshiping Jesus, receiving forgiveness from Jesus. She's doing what Simon should have done. Simon didn't serve Jesus the way he ought to. This woman is serving Jesus as they ought to, and now he's judging her for it. And Jesus is driving home the point to Simon and all the Pharisees and self-righteous religious people who think that their debt, now listen, to God is very small. The scripture talks about sin, and sin leads to debt. Forgive us of our debt, we see in the, in the prayer that Jesus offers us how to pray. Forgive us of our debts as we forgive those. But yet this woman sees what debt she's in. Think of it this way. I'm pretty sure everyone in this room, I would assume everyone pays a bill at some point. Right? Everyone in this room has some sort of debt. Each week, each month, you get a bill, some sort of debt, payment is owed. 
credit cards, mortgage payments, school loans, car loans, whatever it is. And it comes a day where the debtors are going, you know what? Pay up. Give me my money. So let me ask you a question in quietness of your own soul. If God were to keep a ledger, a sin ledger, each month, and at the end of the month, he sent you the bill every month, what would your debt be? All the things that God has commanded you to do, and you didn't do them. All the things that God said you should do, you don't do it. All the things God, God says don't do, and you do it anyway. What if God took an account, began a ledger of sin debt, past, present, and future, your thoughts, your words, your deeds, sins of commission, omission, everything you have done, everything you have not done, including those things that we said at the beginning that no one knows, and said, here's your bill. Pay up. What would my debt be? What would your debt be? That's the point. Dr. Phil Riken. One way, listen to this, this is hard, <laughs> but important. One way to test our, one way to test our grasp of God's grace it's to see how we respond to the people we think of as sinners. Ouch. What we say about them, how we treat them, and what we do or fail to do to touch their lives with the love of Jesus Christ indicate our true understanding of God and his grace toward us. Sadly, says there are Christians who refuse to get involved in the lives of people who are in spiritual trouble. They don't want to touch sinners, and they do not let sinners touch them, end quote. Jesus is not saying we must enter into a situation where we, 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 we are being led or being uh, tempted into sin, but we are called to share the love of Jesus to people who so desperately need to know the love and grace of God. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? Didn't Jesus uh, touch our lives with grace and love while we were dead in our sin and unable to pay our sin debt? If you're a follower of Christ, the answer is affirmative. So how can we love those caught up in sexual sin? How do we love those openly gay transgender folks that live next door in an apartment complex, go to our school? The love of Christ must lead us, yes, with wisdom, but we meet, we we are called to build relationships with them. As I said many times, I believe the scripture is clear. We don't emulate the culture, the sinful practices of our culture. And we don't escape the sinful practices of our culture. We have an attitude of contentment towards them. We are called to an, an all-embracing love that shuns evil without shunning people. What would, be, what would really happen if we believe that God's grace is sufficient for all sinners? Loving, engaging them the way Jesus lovingly engages this woman of the city, this Pharisee's house. When we live with that kind of love, family, when we live that kind of mission, that kind of love, it has the power to transform and to change people's lives. And not just theirs, yours as well. Amen? But yours as well. You have the infiltration. You have the illustration of this parable. Now look at verse 44. Very interesting verse. Look at verse 44 with me. 
Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, he's speaking to Simon, looking at her. The text picks that up. And what does he say? Do you see this woman? He doesn't. That's the point. He doesn't see her as a fellow sinner created in the Imago Dei, the image and likeness of God, fellow human who needs grace, certainly doesn't see her as redeemable, lovable. Simon only saw her as she was in the past, not who she is now in the present. Hopefully we never look at people like this, religious, with religious eyes, because if you do and I do, we won't really see them. We'll see people condemnable, damnable, Someone who is outside the reach of God's grace. That's what religious people do. They don't see people. They don't see sinners who can be forgiven, where their debts can be canceled. They don't see that, right? They don't see a life that could be transformed. May we never look like that. Look at verse 44. He says to her, you see this woman? I don't think you do, but let me tell you something. I entered your house. You gave me nothing. You gave me no water, my feet, yet she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Verse 46. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with what? Ointment. Jesus says, listen, since I've been here, this woman has given me more than you have. You haven't even given me the duties of commonplace of hospitality in our culture. You didn't provide water for my feet, someone to wash my feet, or even give me water so I could wash them myself. You didn't put oil on my head. You didn't give him a customary kiss. You were barely hospitable to me. But look at this woman. She didn't bring any water, but you know what she did? She wet my feet with her tears. She didn't give me a kiss on the cheek. You know why? She kept kissing my feet. She did not anoint my head with oil. She anointed my feet with oil and wiped them with her long hair. And I think this this disrespectful response shows that Simon had at least some contempt toward Jesus as well as this woman of the night. Rather than honoring him with this common courtesy, Simon treats him with haughty indifference. Simon, you may, you, you may be religious, but you certainly don't love Jesus. And the truth is, she's a better host than he is. Verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven. Her sins which are many are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. I love that verse. Family, this doesn't mean, listen, this doesn't mean that her actions are the means or the merit by which she was forgiven. Just like the debtor in the parable, she was graciously forgiven. In fact, the word for, uh, for she loved much means in view of the fact that she has doing what she's doing shows in the love that she has toward Jesus. The Jerusalem Bible, which I don't usually quote from, but this, this is, this is uh, their interpretation of that verse. 
her sins, her many sins, must have been forgiven her or she would not have shown such great love. You see, her attitude of gratitude was the proof that she had received already God's grace. In fact, the phrase are forgiven, perfect verb, passive voice, done in the past. She's in a state of forgiveness and it was done by God. What Jesus is saying here is her abundant love, her abundant devotion, her abundant worship was evidence of her deep acknowledgement of her sin and the abundance of God's grace in her life. And the depth and the passion of our personal devotion of Jesus depends clearly on seeing our personal guilt and then the forgiveness that Christ has to offer. Why do we love so little? Because we don't truly understand the depth of our sin. We don't truly understand the depths of Christ's forgiveness. And the deeper we drink of the gospel, the deeper we drink of a wretched man that I am and the beauty and glory of Jesus, the deeper we'll have devotion and worship of Christ. Jesus says the one who loves little is therefore forgiven little. I think it's rhetorical. Simon thinks he needs little help, little forgiveness. We see the connection of love and forgiveness clearly here in this text. We see clearly the contrast between this extravagant love and devotion of a forgiven sinner and this scornful contempt of the self-righteous Pharisee. He turns to her in verse 48. Your sins already have been forgiven, really, is the text. But your sins are forgiven. Why would he say that? If everything is done in the past, she's in a state of forgiveness. I'll tell you why. Because sometimes, you know why, family? You just need to hear it. You just need to hear it. It's not just a public announcement so that everyone in the room could know. I think that's part of it. But he says to this woman, you're no longer in that classification that they would put you in. You're a new creation in Christ. You've been forgiven of your sins. Let me, let me make a, a bold statement. You can get a phone call this afternoon of, of a dead uncle or a dead aunt that you never met before, and they left you $20 million. Hey, you're, you're you just invested. You just won $10 million. Or you just, someone just left you $10 million. Or, or you're now the CEO of a large company. It does not compare, not even remotely, than hearing the words of the Lord Jesus Christ say to you, your sins are forgiven. Notice Jesus doesn't excuse, neglect her sin, shift the blame for her sin. He doesn't say, oh, she had a hard life. Don't judge her. Don't call her lifestyle sin. What he says is her sins, which are many, are forgiven. But what's happening here is Jesus Loved her much. She loved him much. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Listen, when you come to know and experience how much Jesus loves you and you love him back with this heartfelt passion, worship, and generous action, generous action in service, that's where transformation begins by drinking deeply of the gospel. Your sins are many. You are forgiven of your sins. And there's this devotion and love being poured out upon the Savior. Knowing her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Do you remember that day? I remember that day distinctively. 
when all that I had done, drugging, using, living in the street, all the stuff I've done, to hear Jesus say, your sins are forgiven. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. Verse 39. Some at the table began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Once again, Jesus showed his authority. Only God forgives sins. And Jesus says, now I forgive sins. That makes Jesus what? God himself in the flesh. We saw that back in chapter 5 with the paralytic. And he says to the women, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Not your love, but Jesus. It is Jesus, not the woman's love, is the source of her forgiveness. The object of her faith is Christ. She's worshiping Jesus. Jesus the means by which her debts are canceled, where all her sins are forgiven. He's going to ultimately go to the cross for her sins, for our sins. He's going to substitute himself, die in our place, three days later rise from the dead, pay all our debts that we owe to God. You see, religion says... You need to pay your debt. You need to do this. You need to do that. You need to go to Mecca. You need to fivefold this. You, you got to do all this stuff. You pay your debt. That's not the gospel. The gospel is we don't pay our debt to God. Jesus, our good God and Savior, pays the debt for us in our place. That's what the gospel is. Listen, we love Jesus more and more. We get a cultivation of his love through the, through the gospel and seeing our sin and seeing his mercy grace. And he says to Simon, you think your sin is this big? Sometimes we think that of ourselves. We say, our, our sin is only that much. That much sin is enough to send us to hell. Break one commandment, you fulfilled, you broke them all, James tells us. Either Jesus goes to the cross and pays the debt for our sins, or we spend eternity in hell separate from him, paying it ourselves. But in dying in our place, Jesus proves himself to be just and holy, at the same time loving, gracious, and merciful, and pays our debt. Jesus dies on the cross. What does he say as he's dying? It is finished. Paid in full. Forgiveness offered. And what's so cool about this story is it's not just her story. Look, look at verse 8, chapter 8, verse 1. It's not there by accident. Remember, chapters and verses are not there. Uh, we're not in the original language, right? Soon afterwards, after this, this incident with this woman of the night, soon afterward, he, Jesus, went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him, that's the apostles, and also some women, oh, here we go, women again, who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many other women who provided for them out of their means. You know what? Jesus loved women. And you may say, well, all right, well, in that day, that was unusual. Women were called into the ministry. Women were, were taught by Jesus. He had his 12, he had his male apostles with him, but he loved women. He included them in the ministry. They were part of his traveling band of followers, servants of Jesus. And they all didn't have great stories. Magdalene, look, seven demons. Some, some of them were demonized, and Jesus heals them. Loves them, changed their life, out of control life, suicidal, sick, all healed by Jesus, delivered by Jesus, transformed by Jesus. Even Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household, wealthy, influential family. And what did these women do? They're being delivered, they're being healed, they're, they're part of the ministry, they're part of band of followers. And what do they do? They're like, all right, listen guys, you've been eating ramen soup long enough, let me cook for you. Said so they provided for him out of their means. Ramen soup get old. They're like, listen, Jesus, 
The women here want to get involved. Can we get involved? Absolutely. What can we do? Can we share our testimony? Absolutely. Can we talk about the grace you've shown us in our life? Absolutely. Can we encourage the brokenhearted women, the abused, the betrayed women? Absolutely. Can we pray for them? Can we serve them? Absolutely. The king has come, and everyone takes a part of the kingdom. Family, this narrative should encourage us to be aware of our sin, not to celebrate it, but in order to celebrate how great the grace and forgiveness of God really is. The opportunity lies before us on this table. Jesus is the Savior who forgives the biggest sinners. That's you. You're welcome. And that's me. This woman understood that Jesus could remove her guilt and shame, grant her a new life, grant her a new heart, grant her a new future. And the more she acknowledges her sin, the, greatest, the greater Jesus' love and Jesus' grace and Jesus' mercy appear to her, and she's weeping. She's weeping over her sin, and she's delighting in her Savior. That's the gospel. How about you this morning? As the band comes up, we prepare. What, what, a, what, a, what, a, what a perfect text. What a perfect text to say, you and I are desperately sinful and owe God a debt we could never pay. But God, God is so good and so loving and so gracious. God pays the debt for us by dying on the cross, taking our sin, paying our penalty, absorbing the wrath we deserve upon himself, and then offers us free, gracious forgiveness. That's what this is all about. So maybe you're here this morning and you've never taken the Lord's Supper. You're not quite sure. You're not sure where you are with Christ. The Bible calls us to repentance. To acknowledge you're a sinner and to acknowledge that Christ is the Savior and to say, I'm tired of, of running my own life, being my own Lord. I'm going to turn now to Jesus. And if you've done that, you're welcome to the table. All followers are welcome to the table. If you're not, just stay back. The table is for believers only. But maybe you're here this morning and you are a follower of Christ, but you lost that passion, that, that loving devotion to Christ. We're going to pray in a moment, and we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to show you the beauty of Christ, the desperate need you have for him, and to give us an affection for him that we haven't had in a long time. Okay? Let's pray. Father, this story that you have given to us in your word, this true narrative that took place thousands of years ago, Father, stir in our hearts, help it to stir in our hearts, a deeper devotion to Christ, a greater service to Christ, a deeper love and affection for Christ, so that all the things of this world will fall away in comparison to the beauty of Jesus, our Savior. And so, Father, as we take of the bread and we drink of the cup, remembering the work of Jesus. We're praying, God, that your Holy Spirit will invite us in to a place of recognizing how great and glorious and good you really are and how desperate we are without you. So, Father, as the band plays, as we have a curtain around our soul, we pray that you would, Lord, draw us into a deeper affection of Christ that we may celebrate his work of forgiveness on the cross together and sing 
to the beauty and glory of the one who gave his life for us. In Jesus' name we pray.